Hi everybody, welcome back to Iroquois History and Legends. I'm Caleb. And I am Andrew. Welcome to episode 25, Diplomacy. This sounds riveting, Andrew. We're going to make this as exciting as possible. There really is a lot of cool stuff that's happening here, but we're going to try and keep the pace flowing. There's a lot to cover. We're going to try and sum up diplomacy among the Six Nations and all the European powers over the course of 50 years into one episode. Does that sound like a challenge we're up to? It sounds like a challenge, but it sounds like a good one because I want to get this over with. Because once we're done with this, we get to start setting up the French and Indian War. And for our Canadian and European friends, that's the Seven Years' War. Which is ironic because it took nine years. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. In 1701, we talked about the Great Peace of Montreal, correct? Correct. The same year, there was also an Albany Conference with the British. So the Iroquois... Confederacy has made peace between the French and had this standing relationship with the English renewed to brighten their covenant chain. And this is an interesting piece because they're not claiming that they are going to be their war buddies and wage war against anybody else. This is a neutral peace. They're working out two different treaties with these two different countries and stating that uh, we'll be neutral and we won't help you, but at the same time we won't help the French and we'll be good with that. Now, help is a general term, but the Iroquois really needed to do this at this point. War, disease, and displacement caused by all the different influences in the League had caused that their very core to be shaken. There had been numerous invasions by Frontenac and other people, and smallpox plagues were wreaking and destroying their population. So they decided that they're going to use the hatchet less and the wampum belt more. So over the next several decades, war between New France and the British colonies would flare up on and off again all the time. And the Six Nations kind of used this to their advantage, Caleb, because although they're neutral, they still kind of deal in information. The English would constantly be asking the Iroquois to do them favors, and vice versa, the French would be asking them to do favors. And the Iroquois would say, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll do that. But at the same time, they would slip stuff to the English and say, hey, just a heads up, there's a French army planning on doing such and such, and vice versa. If the English were planning on an invasion up into Canada, they would tip the French off. And this would ingratiate them on both sides, thinking, oh yeah, they're really on our side, they're giving us a heads up. But somehow, every time an English expedition tried to make it to Canada, the Canadians were ready for them. I don't know how that happened. The Iroquois were also able to kind of step in, uh, I like to picture almost being like a black market type thing. You got to remember the French and the English are both in everything for money. Uh, they're trying to make sure that certain trade goods are just coming through their ports. But what it ended up happening is whenever people wanted to get around that, they would pay an Iroquois person to take some goods from Albany and take them up to Canada and trade them there, and then they would give the Indian a cut. This was kind of becoming stressful for especially the governors in uh, New York at the time because. Everybody kind of knew this was going on, but you couldn't really challenge them on it because it was so important to make sure you stayed on the Five Nations good side. And the last thing you wanted was, one, driving the Iroquois into league with the French or vice versa. You didn't want to piss off the Iroquois and cause them to be English allies and invade Canada against you. So there was this balance of power that, for better or worse, was just sitting there with the Six Nations as the middleman and England and France constantly telling them, Please stop dealing with the other side, and they'll say, oh, yeah, 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 of course we will. At the meantime, doing whatever's in their best interest, because that's what any sovereign nation is going to do. Realistically, the Iroquois didn't want and most likely couldn't have been a huge force in battle at this time 
anyway, but they wanted to do their best to make sure the French and the English didn't know that. They, they need to stay relevant in this crazy new colonial world that's going on. So they are putting their brains together and they are just coming up with uh, these strategies to outwit everybody. Now, if you remember, the Iroquois are positioned, we'll say mostly in western central New York at the time. That's kind of their, their capital area. Yes, uh, throughout Ohio and Pennsylvania and Ontario, Canada, they have trade rights. They have hunting rights in lots of these land and they're kind of subservient to the Iroquois. But in logistical sense, let's just say they're based in central New York. So if you think of any Western nation that needs to come and do diplomacy with the English or with the French to trade, the Iroquois are naturally sitting right between both of them. So anybody that wants to trade or have any diplomacy with the English or the French needs to basically clear that with the Iroquois. So the Iroquois are kind of giving this persona to the French and the English that all of these other nations come to them. And then they will bring their requests to the English. So the English are getting it in their head that if we want to talk to anybody else, we got to go through the Iroquois because they're the biggest and they're the most powerful. And they set this expectation that, hey, we're going to stay in your good graces, but any major deals that are happening in the West or the Southwest, we want it run by us first. It affects our entire system of government and how we have our longhouse set up. And this would work out relatively well for the Iroquois and for the other nations if the other nations submitted to the Iroquois. But we're going to see a lot of the times if you weren't on the Iroquois' very good graces, something like this might happen where the Iroquois are going to sit down and do a, a peace treaty with the English and they're going to give a chunk of land to the English out of good graces. And guess what? It might be your land. And the Iroquois are saying, we defeated them in battle, so we have rights to their land. So here, we're going to trade you this land. So this made all the other smaller nations around basically cowtail to the Iroquois. At the same time, it wasn't a horrible thing to be part of this Iroquois confederacy. We mentioned before that some of these smaller nations and tribes were called props. Think of them like extensions of the Longhouse. They have it set up so that they know that the Six Nations are not going to be attacking them. And if they are attacked, the Six Nations may help them. But by putting themselves under submission to the Six Nations, they don't have to worry about invaders from the north coming down against them. Yeah, it basically gives you three-way protection because once you're a prop to the Longhouse... You don't have to worry about any of the Six Nations. You don't have to worry about any of the English or any of the French or else Big Brother uh, Iroquois is going to step up and defend you. Now, a lot of this diplomacy couldn't possibly happen if there weren't good diplomats. You can have a good policy, but if you have people that don't know how to talk well, and as we see with politicians all the time now with the day of everything being video recorded and everybody commenting on it on YouTube and Facebook. We really feel like if you make one slip of the tongue, everybody's going to label you a dunce. Iroquois diplomats were known as amazing public speakers in the same light, as we'd mentioned before, as the ancient Greeks and Romans, trained in rhetoric. And when we say rhetoric, we mean that in a positive way, not how it's used today talking about somebody blabbing on and on and on about their one point. You ever see those Hollywood movies, Caleb, where the person's there and everybody's against this one plan, but somebody comes up and gives an impassioned speech and everybody gets a tear in their eye and changes their mind and stands up and applauds, something mm -hmm. that never happens in America today. Well, stuff like that used to happen in Iroquois councils. It's totally different than what we would think. But people that spoke well 
and made valid common sense points could wholeheartedly sway a council or a group of people. And there was a reason why they were so good at this. And it kind of makes me picture today in our culture, everything's got to be quick. Sometimes my wife's trying to talk to me and I'm thinking, come on, just hurry up and get on. Tell me what you're trying to say. But if you think about it in colonial America, when you would have people coming to your town, they would sometimes be walking hundreds of miles away. They could be family members or friends. And when they would get there, you would want to talk about everything. So they talked. They really enjoyed talking to each other. And we're going to see this at some peace conferences with uh, the English and the French where they're just getting so frustrated because they have this whole list of things you have to do first, these protocols, things like asking how the family is and mourning with them if somebody has died in their family. So these, these conferences could take days and days of people talking. So they were used to talking, and they were good at talking. And not only were they good at swaying things, but they were also good at painting a picture. They would use a lot of similes and metaphors to try and get their point across. There's one main person that uh, I wanted to talk about, and it's not what you think that this was all a man's job, because women were also gifted in public speaking and shrewdness, which is actually a good thing to have when you're living in colonial America. And that was a person named Madame Montour. Madame Montour was the child of a Frenchman and an Algonquin woman. And during one of these raids by the Iroquois into Canada, she's captured as a young person. When she's interviewed later in her life, they ask her about her white parents. And she says that she just has very small memories of even what they looked like. So even though she was white... Basically, from a young age, she was raised Algonquian. There is a tall tale fable that she was the daughter of Governor Frontenac. That's most likely a 19th century romantic story that's written about her. And at one time, she does claim to be a governor's daughter, but they think that she might have just been saying that to try and add a little more clout to the situation that she was publicly speaking in. But odds are, she was definitely the daughter of a Frenchman trader, or somebody that was pretty high up in the government. So, because of her cultural knowledge, she has an Algonquin mother, French father, so she speaks French, she knows the major Algonquin languages, and since she's being raised by the Iroquois, she knows all of the Iroquoian dialects. And she ends up marrying Karadawana, an Oneida chief. Yeah, an Oneida war chief. So now on top of her already knowing these languages... She's basically worked her way up in their culture to being a prominent woman amongst them. Also, at the same time, she's kind of learning from her husband politics and things like that because of his experiences going off and fighting wars. So she becomes a hugely sought-after advisor. Pennsylvanian officials, private traders, if anybody wanted to get a deal done, they needed Madame Montour to come in and negotiate. Whether you wanted to get new rights to furs or sell guns to somebody, or negotiate a land deal, you needed to go through her because she was the best of the best. She's just all over the map. Anytime that you talk about things that are going on in the 1740s, she met Moravian missionaries who wanted to build a settlement. In 1744, she's down in Pennsylvania doing a treaty at Lancaster. After her decades-long career, finally in 1745, She's living with her son, Andrew, on an island out in the Susquehanna River near Shemokin. I've been there. Very nice place, which was a mixture place where all these different people living under Iroquois had settled. A couple years later, she was kind of retired. They moved out to the Ohio River and was probably going blind at the time. That's the last time we hear from her. But 
she's just all over the place. And her legacy that she leaves behind is her son Andrew is going to be a huge diplomat. She has nieces and other daughters that are going to be called queens of the Seneca and other high-ranking diplomats as well. So we're going to be talking a lot more about her relatives. But if you've been in the southern tier area of New York or even northern Pennsylvania, you may have heard of Montour County or Montour Falls, New York or Catherinestown. Those are all named after her and people of her family. Now that peace has been made with the French settlements and the new trading posts have been set up in the West for the French, this kind of leaves the Iroquois penned in. They, they can't go east, they can't go north because of Canada, and they've agreed to be at peace with the French, and they started setting up forts along the Mississippi River and in Detroit. So there's only one direction they can go now, and that's south. They're also going to run into kind of some cultural uh, tension due to the fact that they're penned in now between the French and the English and their allies, because traditionally, we've mentioned this in the past, the way that the young men gain prestige amongst the other men in the village is going out into battle. But now you're surrounded by allies. So we're going to see that the South is going to be the only place for these, these young warriors to now start marching down and trying to find some way to distinguish themselves and their clans. And when we say South, we mean way South because they've now got the Delaware and the Shawnee and these other Pennsylvanian tribes, the Susquehannock, they've assimilated. So they got to go south into Virginia and Carolina now to do raiding parties because they can't even attack their prop allies anymore. Now, the Appalachians have this trail that goes from Pennsylvania all the way down into Georgia. Native Americans had been using this trail for hundreds of years, maybe thousands of years. So it was pretty much like the highway of the day. And the Iroquois were going up and down this thing all the time, and it had pretty much become their highway. Yeah, if I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with the Appalachian Trail, but it's, it's a famous trail. Like Andrew said, it goes from Georgia all the way up to Maine. And just to give you kind of an idea, experienced hikers, it takes them about 10 months to do this. And these are people that do it, and that's all they do. They just backpack hiking from Georgia to Maine. And it takes six months if you're good, and it can take up to a year if you're just an average Joe. And this was their main highway. So picture you having to walk that trail down just to find somebody to fight. And this is the same trail that they used when we were talking about the Tuscarora War when they're coming down and doing diplomacy with the Tuscarora during that conflict. And it's the same trail that they used to go back and forth. As they're spreading out, they start to give names to these places on both sides of the Appalachians. And so you may not even know it, but a lot of the places in America that we know of today have Iroquoian names. Uh, have you ever heard of Kentucky? Well, Kentucky is an Iroquoian name in Mohawk. Kentucky means the meadows or Ohio, Ohio, means the Great River. And so as they go, we start seeing the lasting impact as they're spreading out. And many other towns, cities, counties, rivers throughout northeastern United States have these Iroquois names. Yeah, growing up here in western New York, Andrew and I both got used to seeing these names. And honestly, until I was an adult, I didn't even think about it and realize, hey, Ticonderoga is Native American, Canadegua. It's not until people come here from down south and they're like, how the heck do you pronounce these names? Canadegua? Ganondaga? Arondequoit? Tonawanda? Chikawaga? It's like, <laughs> Kenesota? Chemung? What? What's so hard about saying that stuff? It's actually kind of interesting. You would think that as the colonists came in and took over the territory, they would just rename everything in, in, in English. But it's, it's actually kind of neat that they kept 
at least in western New York, it seems like more than half the towns still have their Native American names. As they're traveling up and down the Appalachians on both sides, they're still working on diplomatic ties with these other smaller tribes and larger nations. And every situation's different. Sometimes you were able to negotiate a good peace, help your confederacy grow even larger. Sometimes you were just going down to get more captives to bring back to earn prestige among your young men. And sometimes you were just coming in to check on people to make sure that they were still holding their end of the deal. As we saw with the Tuscarora, they were invited to wholly come up and join them as a whole new nation. Now, Andrew, we keep mentioning all these prop nations that have become kind of sub-citizens, subservient to the Iroquois will. The Tuscarora kind of fall somewhere in between there. They basically get their name mentioned with the other five, but yet they don't get any men on the Sachem Council. And I think we briefly mentioned that at the end of the Tuscarora War, that they get to be their own nation, but they are represented by the Oneida, correct? Yes. Uh, so what's the deal with all these prop nations? Do they get any representation? What are the benefits of them being props to the Iroquois? Well, they're not going to get a seat on the Council of Sachems, that's for sure. The benefits they get, as we mentioned before, they don't get attacked, and they get presents redistributed to them after councils. Getting gifts is a big part of their diplomacy. When you go into the town, you're expected to give gifts, and that shows that you're friends, and then you can talk about whatever treaty you want to do. Now, this could be a big deal and a very expensive deal. We're going to see a lot of governors of New York complain about how expensive it is to do these peace treaties because it's not just the 50 sachems come and do their meeting and you give them all each a knife. It's they come and all their extended family and all their extended family's family. And these props nations are sending representatives also. That's true. Even though they don't get a voice on the 50, they have voices to specific ones in the 50. Say, for example, uh, like we said, the Tuscarora, they speak to the Oneida, and the Oneida speak for the Tuscarora. It would be a similar type of thing with these prop nations. If they had something that they needed brought up, they didn't have the authority to bring it up, but what they could do is talk to the sachems outside, and then the sachems would bring it in if they thought it was important. And not only would they talk and uh, voice the concerns of these other prop nations, but when gifts were given, it wasn't just the 50 sachems would keep the gifts themselves. Then the 50 sachems would do trickle-down gifts based on importance. So if you were a prop nation, you weren't just left out of everything completely. And we as Westerners tend to be very greedy. It's like, oh, somebody hands out six iPhones, and four of them are the brand new iPhone, and some of them are the older iPhones. And, oh, well, we're the representatives, so we'll keep the best iPhone for ourselves and we'll give our prop people the crappy iPhone, or maybe we'll just give them the iPod Nano. But it wasn't exactly like that either. <laughs> That's going to sound really dated in 10 years if people are listening to this podcast. It's dated now. Who still uses an iPod Nano? I bet you there's somebody listening to this podcast right now on an iPod Nano. Sorry. Anyway, they wanted their prestige to still be up. Just like the Iroquois were expecting to get good gifts from the English, they understood that they would need to give good gifts to their allies and the props as well. Because if they're giving them the crappy stuff, they're not going to want to be props anymore. So it's a two-way street. Now, did the Six Nations get a little bit more? Yes, they did. But it wasn't like they were just throwing bones to the props either. Now, Andrew, after these gifts have all been given out and distributed uh, evenly amongst all the props and things like that, 
you would have your great speakers come, and uh, they would talk to the colonial leaders. And the interesting thing about the colonial leaders is a lot of times you would have governors from several states at these conferences. You could have the New York governor, New England governors, Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Virginia all at this conference together. Because the Iroquois, not only are they playing the French Canadians and the British colonials off one another, they're playing the colonies off one another too. And this is before Declaration of Independence, and the colonies really don't get along with each other. You know, honestly, if the colonies didn't unite against fighting England, they probably would have just wound up in a civil war against each other, because they did not get along, especially the southern and the northern states, as we see a few hundred more years down the road. Mm -hmm. But you're competing. You're trying to curry favor with the Six Nations, and so the governor of Pennsylvania might want to get that deal done. And the New York governor might want to get the deal done in a different way. And the Virginian governor may be like, will these Iroquois please stop coming down this trail and attacking our friendly Indians? Well, you got to remember how small these colonies are at the time as well. And they all want to be good friends, especially with the Iroquois, because if the Iroquois have the legal rights to all this land, they are the ones that they're getting to write treaties with for how big the states are going to become and how we know them today. Also, uh, trade rights. Uh, they're going to go to Virginia or they're going to go to New York, whoever's given better prices for trade goods. So they are all competing against each other, and this is creating some tension amongst each other. We mentioned all the way back in one of our early episodes that the 50 sachems, when they were appointed after there was a vacancy from somebody dying, the new person coming on would take the name of the deceased person and they viewed it as the spirit coming on to envelop them and give them wisdom as they took their place on the council. Same deal in a family. If somebody passed away and somebody was captured in a mourning war, they would replace the person and give them the new name. So some of these families would constantly be having new name, the same name recycled over the generations so that the name didn't die out. And this kind of tradition stuck with the Iroquois, and they applied it to the Europeans as well, mainly the leaders of the different colonies and the governors. The first one they give it to is the governor of Canada, and they called him Ananteo. There's a couple different pronunciations of that. What does it mean? Great Mountain. And you may be thinking to yourself, well, where did they get that from? Where did they get that from? So one of the first governors was a guy named Montgomery, and roughly translated in French, guess what Montgomery means? Great Mountain. It means Great Mountain. So they would just auto-translate it, but then since he's the first governor and then a new governor shows up... They would just keep calling they him just Montgomery, keep call, basically. They just keep calling him the same name because they viewed the office as resting on that person, so he has the same spirit as the first governor. And this wasn't just the case with the French governors, but they would also do it for the other ones. The New York governor they called Colliard, after Lieutenant Governor Colden. In Virginia, they called the governor Asarakoa, which means cutlass, like a dagger or a saber, some kind of long knife. In the Anadaga language, um, this was kind of a pun, because the Anadaga were used to trading with the Dutch. I'm going to explain this. It's, it's complicated, but it makes sense. They knew some Dutch. And when they heard the current governor's name, his name was Howard, and they thought to themselves, Howard, that sounds like the Dutch word Hauer, and that means a cutlass or a long knife. So from then on, they started calling the Virginian governor Long Knife. We're going to see that over the years, eventually, 
they're going to call all Virginians the Long Knives, and eventually they're even going to call the Americans the Long Knives after this name. Uh, Maryland, they called Tokaragoan, which means living in the middle. And what do we know about Maryland? It's the middle colony. The Pennsylvania name they had for the governor, I find the funniest, Caleb. The name they gave was Onus. And it's a very common word, but it means quill or feather. And if you recall at the time, what they were using as pens was feathers. So they literally made his name into a pun based on what his actual name was, William Penn, and named him Feather Quill. So all future governors are called Onus. So they basically took the same concept on how the Tadadaho in the Onondaga just generation after generation kept the same title and name, and they applied that to the governors of the colonies and just gave them these Native American title names. So now that we've mentioned William Penn, let's back up a bit and talk about him, because he's going to be very influential in the history of North America, but especially among the Six Nations. So in 1677, a group of prominent Quakers that included William Penn purchased the colonial province of West Jersey. That's the western side of New Jersey. With this New Jersey foothold in place, Penn advocated to have a Quaker establishment set in the region. To Penn's surprise, King Charles II was very eager to have these Quakers set up this colony and generously gave them a charter and gave them a huge amount of land. And it made Penn one of the world's largest private landowners. He gave them over 45,000 square miles. There were people living there, but still... He gave the charter. The king would give him total rule and sovereignty over the territory, except the power to declare war. So he's like almost a sovereign. That's how much power the king gives him. In return, the king wants one-fifth of all the gold and silver mined in the province. Uh, how much gold and silver is in Pennsylvania, Caleb? Well, there's a lot of coal there. There's, there's, there's that, some natural gas. I don't know how much gold or silver there is, though. There isn't much. So fortunately, Penn didn't have to pay much of <laughs> that to the crown. Why would the king do this? Well, the king kind of owed a lot of money. He had just retaken the throne after a time where the Cromwells had ruled everything after they killed his father, and all this war cost a lot of money, and he owed possibly around 16,000 pounds, which comes out to 2.2 million pounds today. And he thought, if I give some of this, well, it can offset some of this debt that I have towards the Penn family. Oh, so the king owed the Penn family money? Yes. Oh, okay. So he's like, I don't have any cash to pay you back, but what have I got in my pockets? I got some land in North America. And Penn thinks that this is a great opportunity because he wants a, a refuge place for his Quaker brethren. And the Quakers are quite this persecuted minority religious sect at the time because... They don't swear allegiance to the crown or to the church. They believe in worshiping God in their own way, and they don't want to be having these bishops and cardinals over them. They just want to worship God privately in their own communities. And so this causes a lot of frontage. Yeah, Andrew, William Penn, uh, we have a letter from him writing about how excited he is that the king blessed him with this land. And he writes, quote, It is a clear and just thing that my God, who has given it to me through many difficulties, will, I believe, bless and make the seed of a nation. End quote. You know, it's kind of amazing. Was this guy a prophet or something? And this is literally 100 years before. This is 1677, isn't it? Yep. 99 years before. That's amazing. 
Penn travels to America, and while there, he negotiates Pennsylvania's first land purchase survey with the Delaware Indians. And Penn, read about this guy, folks. Seriously, William Penn is one of the most straight-laced, centuries-ahead-of-his-time kind of guy. He proclaims that he would not exploit natives or immigrants, nor would he abuse his love or act unworthy in his province. And he does this for a reason, because he's a Christian man, and he believes that uh, God gave him this land to, to be a steward over, so he feels like if I start basically trying to trick to, and cheat people out of their possessions, God's going to get mad at me and take away this land that he's just blessed me with. And I think we have another quote here. This is when he's meeting with the Delaware for a treaty in 1683, and here's what he says. We meet on the broad pathway of good faith and goodwill. No advantage shall be taken on either side, but all shall be openness and love. We are the same as of one man's body was to be divided into two parts. We are of one flesh and one blood. In a reply, one of the chiefs of the Delaware wrote, We will live in love with William Penn and his children as long as the creeks and rivers run, and while the sun, moon, and stars endure. So these are really beautiful poetic things. And William Penn, while he's alive, does right by almost every standard we can think of. There is one little caveat. He did have some slaves. However, William Penn was well known for actually paying them a little bit on the side and making sure that they were treated fairly and making sure that they were freed after a period of time. So you can say that against him. But in every other dealing, when it comes to immigrants from other countries coming over, dealing with the Native Americans to pay a fair price to settle on lands that are already theirs, and dealing with people that are serving him, you can't go wrong. In addition to that, the king gives him almost the authority to be a, a minor king, but he writes a constitution limiting his own power because he thinks that he shouldn't be controlling too much. And even after all that, Penn buys this land from the Delaware, but the Delaware still retain the right to travel on the land that's been sold and to hunt and fish and gather there whenever they want. So they've got free reign to still use it as they would like. And so that's a great deal for their part as well. So there's a wampum belt called the William Penn wampum belt for obvious reasons. And it's believed that it was given by William Penn to the natives. And it's really cute. It's two guys standing there in the rows. You can Google it and look it up. And they're holding hands, and one of them has a white heart in the middle, just to signify their enduring friendship and peace. You nice. think you think William Penn uh, made it himself? He definitely ordered it. I don't know how good he was at uh, stringing <laughs> wampum beads. Maybe he stayed up. You know what I bet happened? He kept putting it off and putting it off. He knew that he had the conference was coming up, and he's like, oh, crap, that's tomorrow. And I bet he stayed up all night by candlelight stringing it together. And he really <laughs> wanted to put a lot more decorations on, in on it, but he thought it was good enough for a C in class. Regardless, it's a beautiful belt, and you should look at it. There's one more little thing that William Penn kind of didn't do that haunts his legacy, and that's that he didn't raise his kids to be exactly like him. This is kind of a tale as old as time, isn't it? You have this guy that's a pretty stand-up guy and does everything he can to make sure that the common good is spread around to all people. And he just winds up with the most weaselly cheating kids you can picture. So William Penn dies in 1718. And like he's got these two sons that have none of his scruples. 
1736, they approached the Five Nations about acquiring some land. A standard deal. You know, the Europeans are always looking for land, but William Penn has always dealt fairly with everybody. And so we see no problems. Uh, the main person they went to deal with was a chief and diplomat named Shekelemy. Shekelemy was an Oneida chief, and he was kind of like this overseer for the Iroquois Confederacy. Think of him kind of like a viceroy or an advisor. He was down in the southern area of Pennsylvania overseeing these prop nations to be an intermediary going back and forth between the five then six nations and addressing concerns and issues. They and Shekelemy come to a deal where they agree to sell some land along the Delaware River south of the Blue Mountain. And since the Iroquois, they figure, well, we've never laid claim to this land, um, but it's technically kind of ours because these people are props, and we'll get a pretty good price for selling it because we didn't pay anything for it. And it's next to the Delaware, but it's it's not right on the Delaware villages. It's They just want a little bit of land along the river. Yeah, we'll sell it to them. Not a problem. The problem was that what the Pennsylvanians took was a lot more, and the other problem was that lot more was on the Delaware's land. In fact, almost all of the Delaware's land was on it. Which brings us to the infamous walking purchase. This is one of the things that really make people think that the white man is out to screw everybody, uh, because this is pretty bad right here. Like Andrew said, they didn't think that they were going to be giving away that much Delaware land. In fact... They didn't go by maps and miles at the time, so they came to a pretty good idea on how to give up a certain amount of land, and that was walking. They couldn't just put out a, a ruler and say, okay, you get 15 miles in this direction. So they said, how about this? How about you have a man walk in this direction uh, as soon as the sun rises, and when the sun sets, he stops, and that's the amount of land we'll sell to you. Now, if you're picturing walking through thick woods... How many miles do you think you could go in a day? I'm guessing maybe seven miles, honestly. That's what I would guess. But they never really specified in the treaty how far it was to walk. And so the brothers start to think of a way to get even more. And what they end up doing is even more sneaky than that is they find this unratified treaty, kind of like a draft that was made up to be given to a conference, but was never brought up, was never talked about, was never signed, if even that, the whole thing was probably a forgery. And so they said that, yeah, this land is all ours. And the Delaware are like, what? Let me see that contract. Oh, it says right here on this contract. We don't remember this. Oh, yeah, your dad agreed to this a long time ago. And, uh, and our father agreed to it. And so you guys need to move. And they're like, well, hold on. Let's, let's remap this, like Caleb said. Let's, what does it say? It says, well, it says a days and a half walk. And they're like, okay, well, that's that's not so bad. Okay, seven miles. All right, we'll sell you seven miles worth. The Delaware are thinking, okay, everything's fine. The Delaware River, we're, we're just 15 miles from there. That's not a big deal. But what gets even sneakier is what happens next. So once Thomas Penn gets them to admit that this is somewhat legitimate treaty and they're going to allow this walking purchase, even though it's not, even but they've not. convinced them that it is, the first thing he's going to do is send out for the fastest runners in Pennsylvania. And the guys with the strongest arms to wield an axe. Oh, actually, that's done ahead of time. Yes. That's but, so he's got the three fastest people, and then what he's going to do is he's going to send a whole team of people out to clear a trail in a straight line. 
So he sends these people out one week and they clear a trail as far as they can go. And then they send the three fastest runners they can find, long distance marathon runners. And he tells them that whoever gets the furthest gets a huge cash prize. I can't remember what he offered him. I think it was like five pounds sterling or something. And then also 500 acres of choice land. So the race begins. And some Delaware agree to come along because they're thinking, well, we want to make sure that we know exactly how far a days and a half journey is. But when they see what's happening, they see the path that's been cleared and they see people taking off running versus what it's supposed to be is just walking. They stop pretty soon after and leave in disgust. They're not even going to participate in this kind of fraud. How far do they get, Caleb? Well, Andrew, the, the winner of the race, the one that gets to claim the award, was named Edward Marshall. And he was able to run 70 miles. you got to be kidding me. In a day and a half. In a day and a half. And think of it this way. It's not 70 miles uh, just one direction. It's 70 miles and and then, you know... Spread out in a square. Spread out in a square. So what they end up with is over 1,200,000 acres of land. For those of you outside of the United States, that's 400,000 hectares. And uh, for those of you that live in America, to give you an idea of that, you ever hear of the state of Rhode Island? It is the same size. So this is a huge land grab. And in this little square is where most of the Delaware people are currently living and have their houses built. The Delaware write and petition to the King of England to do something about this horrible fraud that's been done against them and nothing happens of it of course but they're thinking to themselves that's okay because we're part of the covenant chain with the six nations and they're going to take care of us and they're going to bring this up to the governors in new york there's a little bit of a problem though they send the appeal to the grand council at Onondaga, but the six nation chiefs decided it would be best to stay on the side of the british in this situation there's a lot of tense geopolitical things happening right now and honestly, we need to get these deals done with the British. So a deal's a deal. Um, we find that this really is legit, and maybe it would be best if you guys just move. But, you know, we're a part of a big confederacy, and we're happy to give you guys more land to the West. So we think that it would be best if you guys do this. So the, sadly, the Delaware are put in an impossible situation where they have no power to fight it. Uh, they have no allies that will defend them. So they end up just moving. They all pick up and they end up moving into in the Ohio River Valley area. Uh, they're still pledged loyal to the Confederacy. And like I said, the Confederacy is semi-understanding. I mean, they didn't stand up for them, but they do allow them to relocate and resettle on Haudenosaunee hunting land. But while many of the Delaware did make the move, their hatred for the British is kind of going to simmer and in a couple of decades, we're going to see that the French are going to use this animosity to stir up trouble once the French and Indian War kicks off. And they're going to find a very good outlet for that frustration, mainly by killing British people. Let's switch gears and let's talk about another little nation that's near and dear to my heart, Caleb. There were several smaller nations that ended up looking for a better life, fleeing slave trading in the South or fleeing from disease or other kinds of geopolitical instances that were going on. And one of these groups of people were the Tutelos. The Tutelos kind of moved all over the area. 
they were down in North Carolina, they were in Virginia, they moved to Pennsylvania, back and forth. It seemed like everywhere they went, they ran into trouble. By the 1730s, they had been talking to Iroquois diplomats, and they had moved to Shemokin, Pennsylvania, which is near the Susquehanna River in middle northern Pennsylvania, I guess you could say. And they talked to this guy, Shekelemy, who's the viceroy of the area that we mentioned before, and they seek protection under the Oneida. Eventually, they decide that they want to move even further north to get away from these encroaching Penn brothers that are causing all this trouble. And they come to present-day western New York, where they settle. And they show up there, and the Cayuga people decide that they're going to live among them to give them a hand. The difference is these Tutelo people, they don't speak an Iroquoian language, and they don't really understand what they're saying. And as they're there on the first night, they hear the Cayuga talking, and they get it in their heads that they're all going to be killed and eaten because they've heard that the Iroquois are cannibals and will just do this to anybody. But really, they were just talking about how best to settle them and get them into their society. So these Tutelos end up building a whole village right in the Cayuga Nation. And that modern-day village is Ithaca, New York. They lived right outside of Ithaca near Buttermilk Falls State Park. And it wasn't a small town. They had about 25 longhouses. In 1753... They were officially adopted by the Cayuga to be absorbed by them. The Tutelos were worried, however. They had seen that a lot of these other smaller nations and some even bigger nations had been kind of totally wiped out and assimilated. And although they had a safe home now, they were worried that eventually they're going to be assimilated by the Cayuga and the Six Nations and they're going to kind of fade away and no one's going to remember who they are. And so they asked the Cayuga to make them a promise. They said, promise us that our name will never die out. And the Cayuga promised them that. And you say that they promised them that, but how did the Cayuga actually fulfill that promise? And did they fulfill that promise? The answer is yes, they did. Over time, the Cayuga and the Tutelo are obviously going to intermarry and get mixed up in things. And so the language and culture and dances and everything is going to be snuffed out, and even the names. But what they said was, okay... We're going to make sure that there's always at least 50 Tutelos left. And so to this day, a Cayuga person, when they die, if they have a Tutelo name, a replacement needs to be found for them. And they will find another Cayuga person and officially adopt them with the new name of the person, and they will be a Tutelo, officially adopted. And they make sure that there's always a minimum of 50. Obviously, if they have children by the mother, they're born into the clan, they can keep the name going. But they want to make sure that it's always to a minimum. And so the Tutelos living in Canada under the Cayuga still have this name. Not only do they still keep the name, but there are still these Tutelo dances and songs that they have that the Cayuga and other nations will get together and perform. Even though that's not part of their culture at all, they want to keep the Tutelo culture alive. And they're still doing it. Uh, Just a few years ago down in Ithaca, they had a whole Tutelo festival where different Haudenosaunee people got together and did old, old Tutelo dances. Another cool story is a long time, people were trying to figure out who are these Tutelo people? Because over time, they had lost all their language and everything. And so this anthropologist came through in the 19th century, and he was asking about them. And he said, so who were the Tutelo? And people were like, I don't really know where they came from. They came somewhere down in Virginia. 
He's like, well, what kind of language do they speak? We're not sure. It was really weird and different. And he said, well, is there anybody left? And they said, well, uh, yeah, Old Mosquito's still alive. He's like, Old Mosquito? Yeah, Old Mosquito. He's still alive. Well, how old is he? He's like 100-something. He's like, what? And so this guy, Old Mosquito, was a Tutelo. He had been there after the move, obviously, but his mother had raised him still singing the songs. And he had grown up, he had a Cayuga wife and spoke the Cayuga language, but as a child, he still knew some of the words. And the anthropologist said, could you please, please tell me every single word you remember and what it means. And so he wrote out a uh, hundred so words just to get it. And he came back a few months later and the guy had died. And so this anthropologist started, started doing some studies to try and figure out what this language was related to. And he checked all the Iroquoian languages and nothing matched up, even close. And he tried the Virginian Algonquin languages and nothing matched up and he's trying to figure it out. And finally, he looked at some very Western Siouan people and he started looking at the words and how they match. He's like, no way. And realizing that they were a Siouan people that were one of the most Eastern Siouan peoples. And up until that point, none of the anthropologists knew that there were even Siouan people on this side of the Appalachians. That's amazing. And it's, it's kind of a miracle that the mystery was able to be solved mm -hmm. because it so easily could have just disappeared and nobody would have ever known. And they would have just known, yeah, there were these Tutelo people and they came and were absorbed just like everybody else. But thanks to the Kiyuga and thanks to this anthropologist, the Tutelos will never die out, which is a really cool story. And I think that that's what we're going to wrap up with today, Caleb. So I hope you all got something interesting out of that i'm sorry if this episode was kind of all over the place we were kind of talking about you know four or five different things uh this episode was kind of different than any other episode we've done but we felt like these things were important because we didn't want to just keep jumping in the narrative because uh we thought these things were important and they are because we're going to see that this is kind of what sows the seeds for the french and indian war which is coming in the next couple of years yeah you got to remember now you've got disgruntled uh, Native Americans over in the Ohio country, which is separated from everything, and they're going to be able to start talking to the French and, like Andrew said, starting to cause trouble for everybody in the future. A few announcements. If you want to go to our website, longhousepodcast.com, or you can go to our Facebook page, and while you're there, like us, I've put together this video timeline that shows the expansion of the Confederacy going all the way from European contact to just before the French and Indian War. And it'll just give you a visual idea of how much territory the Confederacy influenced and conquered. Also, Andrew, I keep having people email me and call me. My phone is ringing off the hook. People keep asking me, Caleb, how do we become members of the Wild Sweet Potato Clan? So I'm going to tell everybody right now so you can stop calling me because it's getting really hard to get any sleep at night when the phone's ringing off the hook. If you want to become a member of the Wild Sweet Potato Clan, you just need to go on iTunes and leave us a positive review. Do us a little write-up, tell us how you like the show, and you will be an honorary member. And when that happens, Andrew and I will write your username and put it on our website with all the other members. And then when you refer your friends to our awesome show, you can be sure to show them the link and see that one that says Sharkman745? Yeah, that's me. You can also feel free to send us an email to longhousepodcast at gmail.com 
Or follow us on Twitter, at Iroquois History. Yeah, if you have any complaints, you can email Andrew. And if you have any compliments, you can email me. We hope that you join us for our next episode when a young, handsome Virginia colonial officer is going to set off towards the Ohio country with a group of Mingo Senecas, come into a party of French people, and some shots are going to be fired, some tomahawks are going to be implanted in people's brains, and a world war is going to start. Uh, What was that guy's name again, Caleb? Uh, Let me think. I think his name was uh, George Washington.